Welcome to the Voices of War, a podcast with a simple vision, to bring to life the true costs of war through the voices of those who've lived it. I'm your host, Maz, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi there. Before we get to the next episode with Jamil Hodgic, I feel that a short introduction is necessary. As you will hear, Gemma will describe in detail the hugely traumatic and emotional experience of watching his brother killed by a Serb sniper in the besieged Sarajevo in May 1995. As such, this episode may be quite disturbing to some listeners. Additionally, some might judge this episode as somehow political. It is not. But it is a story about the true costs of war, as lived and remembered by a child whose innocence and youth were taken by the actions of an unknown murderer hiding behind his scope and protected by distance. That's what this episode is about. And I thank Jemil for his raw honesty and willingness to be so vulnerable, and to do so publicly. His story is immensely sad, yet it has given birth to an amazing project that is keeping his brother's legacy and the legacy of the all-too-many-victims-of-war alive. It is also an important story that should leave us in no doubt about the horrors of war. Any war. And finally... I want to let you know that I will be releasing a new episode each Monday for the next several weeks. I have already recorded a number of interesting interviews that are timely and relevant to current events across the globe, and I want to share them with you sooner rather than later. And now, let's hear from Jemil. My guest today is Jamil Hodzic. Jamil was born in Sarajevo. Bosnia and Herzegovina in 1983, where he finished primary school and high school. He was only nine years old when the siege of Sarajevo started. Being a survivor of the war, his experiences inspired him to launch the Sniper Alley project in 2019. The mission and goal of the project was initially to find photos of Jamil's family, especially his older brother, who was killed by a Serb sniper in May 1995. Jamil was only 12 when he witnessed the incident that changed his life forever. Since the inception of the project, it has grown immensely, and today, together with the help of other survivors, his aim is to establish a database to record and archive the life of his brother, as well as the lives of thousands of children who experienced the war in Sarajevo. By collecting photos of the siege and preserving the memory of survival through the eyes of children, Jamil seeks to tell those stories that have been long forgotten as a way of preserving the truth. Professionally, Jamil is now a senior video editor working for Al Jazeera English, an award-winning international news and current affairs channel, and lives in Doha, Qatar. Jamil, uh, as I'm from Sarajevo myself, your story and the message behind your project are very close to my heart. So a uh, special thank you for uh, joining me on the podcast. Uh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate uh, your invitation. I, I really do. Thank you. And also, I must say, it's uh, we've just spoken... Uh, off air a little bit and uh, of course we spoke in our in both our native uh, language uh, Bosnian so uh, a special thanks as well for uh, speaking to me in English which I know uh, for both of us has become our operational language rather than our uh, mother tongue so to say. So before we dive into your personal story which I uh, which is exceptionally moving maybe we can start with life before the war. What do you remember of your life in Sarajevo before the shooting and the subsequent killing started? So I was nine when it started. So the 
life before was, uh, so I was uh, finishing grade three, year three. So I remember endless freedom, I would say. I think kids, before they hit puberty, I would say they are free and they are not aware of all the things that happen to them. It's like, uh, they don't uh, acknowledge or they don't see life as important as grown-ups do. So in a way, uh, and what, what's really interesting with kids, uh, they don't have nostalgia because there's nothing to be remembering before. So like a kid who's seven cannot miss the childhood when they were four because they don't remember it. So I, uh, when, whenever someone asks me about before the war, my brain doesn't see it that way because uh, my brain sees it as before my brother was killed and after my brother was killed. So his murder erased uh, my childhood before the war and the childhood during the war that I had is my childhood. So in a way, I see it as a happy childhood, even though it was war and killings and murdering and everything was happening. I don't see it as such as other kids because during that time, my brother was alive. So my childhood before the war and up to 1995 is like a one one piece, one, one, one childhood, because I didn't change the school. I didn't change the... Uh, I didn't relocate. We lived in a so peace and war merge into one another. And sometimes I would remember things that maybe happened in 1991, but actually they were happening in 1992. So it's very difficult for me to separate those two. I mean, it might sound bizarre to some, but uh, that's how I uh, perceive it, which is. Strange, but no, I don't think it is. I mean, I, I, while my story is vastly different to yours, I can certainly empathise with that because my, if I think of it properly, I think you, you're spot on. If I think of my childhood, my childhood was a happy one, and I think I'm, I'm only a year and a half older than you, so you know, I was I was ten and a, and a bit when the war started. Um, you know, I think you're right. I, I remember life before the war started. And life after the war started, uh, and it's a for me a rather distinct line. As for you, the killing of your brother must be. What do you remember of the start of the war? How how did it start for your family? Because for and just to give some context, the the reason I ask is because I have a very vivid memory of how it started for us. We lived in uh, in Elija, which is to the west of uh, of Sarajevo, on the far west, and it was the first time my mother could hear the river. Uh, you know, in 20 odd years or something, it was eerily quiet the day before the war started or the barricades went up. And it was that, uh, after that night, well, she, she had a sleepless night, but the following morning, uh, she had the feeling that something was very wrong and grabbed me, my brother, and of course my dad, and we went into the city center. And that was the day that the barricades, barricades went up and, uh, and all hell broke loose, so to speak. How, how did it start for you and your family? I remember I was playing outside and uh, we live in an old town. So we, I don't, I don't remember the date. It could be May the 10th or 15th or like it was heavy shelling. I remember that. And I remember I was counting grenades. I was like one, two, and then I would track them 
try to locate them. Ah, that one hit there, that one hit there. And I remember people were collecting uh, and gathering in the street in the street to to try to organize some kind of a defense to 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 join the army and and that night or tomorrow night i remember my mom and my father talking about uh, two of us leaving with uh, my mother to germany i don't remember all the details uh, and this one is tricky one because after the war maybe a few years back my mom told me all the details so i don't know if i heard them back then or i know all of these because she was telling me but uh, she wanted to leave for germany with two of us and my father immediately he said that uh, he's not leaving he's not going anywhere he's here to defend because he was uh, always member of the patriotska league patriotic yeah, league. league yeah and uh, what's really interesting my brother was 13 years old and they asked him what he thinks and he i never shared the story but i think it's it's interesting to show how my family operated in a way how free how free i was he's 13 year old and uh, my parents asked him what he thinks and he said uh, i don't want to leave i, I want to stay here with you with my father and he wanted we wanted to stay and be as one family and that's how they decided to stay so my mom was working in a hospital from day one and my father was a soldier from day one to the last day and uh, i'm very proud of that uh, i mean some people would think differently they would say oh if we left my brother wouldn't be killed but i don't i don't see it that way it's uh, it's not it doesn't come up to us and uh, sometimes i get asked who is your hero who is your who do you see as a role model i mean i have them in my house my my father passed away 5 years ago but um, him and my mother they are i know everyone thinks greatly of their parents of course that's the way it should be but what they did and how they uh, and they are ordinary people i mean just normal people like thousands uh, others so i remember that i remember that we stayed and i remember my father would go to the front line my mother would go to the hospital we would stay alone cook wash i would collect the f- firewood i would go to school and i didn't have um, i didn't see it as a, a burden i didn't see it as a war time i i saw it as life so it's like some people have better memory of the start of the war i don't my, my birthday is on 24th of may and i remember i had it in the shelter but even then having it in the shelter it was re- really cool so to say because it was like 20 kids we didn't have a cake we had something else and it was uh, no school so it's uh, uh, i don't see it as a trauma i have to say because as i said before nobody pushed me out of my house i haven't seen uh, anyone dead yet so it's uh, still like a uh, adventure yeah yeah it's it's exciting and and again i can echo that yeah in, in from in the cellars you know yeah just the kids hiding from counting the grenades and i remember the uh, you know being told by the by the uh, by the older people you know you know if you hear the launch and you hear the whistle 
off the grenade, you're safe. But if you hear the launch and you don't hear the whistle, you know, take cover, it's coming your way. Just these kind of uh, 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 things that years later have finally made sense why people would say that. But as a child, you're kind of uh, taking that as a as your mission, like you said, to count the grenades and try to guess where they're going to uh, land or try to, uh, I know my brother and I, my brother's three years older than me, we were in the cellar and planning our own little defences of how we're going to save uh, save the country. And, you know, I was in the cellar drawing the new Bosnian army, which didn't exist at that time, you know, winning the war and so on. So I, I can certainly empathise the, the, the reality of yeah. a child's perspective. You started talking a little bit about life under the siege. You know, this is where our story certainly changed. Uh, so we left. We did what your parents talked about doing. My brother, mum and I left for Germany because I needed to have a, a knee surgery, uh, which was a, a, I had a, I had a tumor in my right ear. So it was a, it wasn't a question of uh, I, I had to get out, uh, especially with all the shelling uh, and so on. It was, uh, it was impacting my eardrum and whatnot. But what was life under the siege like? And you've made some comments. And I know that you're talking about it from a perspective of nine-year-old, but I just want you to, to think about it as though you're speaking to people who most of my audience will be, who have never experienced the hardships of war, have never heard grenades falling, you know, have never been on the other side of uh, sniper fire or, or machine gun fire. Can you describe that a little bit? What was life under siege like? So I would say the the, the worst uh, part of it would be winter. I, I vividly remember it and I, I can feel it now. I was colder inside the house than outside the house because we didn't have enough firewood. And even if you had, you would burn fire just to cook stuff, not for the sake of heating. So, uh, yeah, because you, you, you had to save stuff. So we burned books, old shoes, plastic, and everything. And uh, But 90, I think 1993 was the, the, the worst winter ever. It was freezing, freezing cold, and I would go out as soon as possible just to play, to be moving, so I keep warm. And if you wanted to take a shower, you had to heat the water in a, in a bucket or something and then if someone wants to, if, if, if you want to take a shower someone needs to help you and then uh, uh, the toilet is cold because there's no heating so for me the the, the worst experience is the winter whatever it uh, uh, I don't I don't remember for example food that much I remember that we ate uh, macaroni and rice a lot and after the war, I thought, and I still think that I don't have any bad memories of that and trauma, but then I realized I didn't eat uh, macaroni till 2007. And, and when I ate it for the first time in 2007, it was uh, in someone else's house. I was hungry and they prepared it and I couldn't say, I'm not eating this. It's just rude. So... From then, slowly, I started to eat it. But for me, even today, it's just uh, something that I really <laughs> despise, even on a picture. And rice, I started eating maybe in 2005, and I'm not a huge fan of it because it stayed with me. But during the, I, I, I don't remember being hungry, for example. But it was terrible. We didn't have chocolate. 
you didn't have toys, you certainly you didn't have new toys, you didn't have uh, clothes, uh, so you would have to I was taking clothes from my brother, but he was four years older than me. So sometimes it would be like uh, much bigger, but still I would wear it. I, I, I remember I didn't have shoes for football and uh, I would wear his shoes, but then I would put uh, winter socks, two pairs of winter <laughs> socks, so it, they fit. So yeah. all, all these uh, small details uh, maybe can give a bigger picture to someone so who never experienced anything like it. So having uh, not having water, electricity, and heating, you kind of get used to it. But these things, uh, you, you don't have school equipment like uh, pencils, paper. Uh, if you go to school, you don't have uh, food. You, you bring something from your home. and But one thing that was, uh, I wouldn't say good, but... We were all in this together, so there was no exclusion, and there was no um, uh, no one was uh, prioritized. So, if you are hungry, everyone is hungry. So, this you can't complain to anyone. It's a similar with COVID, but now COVID is so international. So, for example, jokes about COVID when you tell them, you don't have to explain any context. You don't have to. Uh, everyone gets it immediately. So during the war, everyone understood everything immediately. If you say, I didn't wash for two days or three days or 10 days, or I don't have enough of salt, people get you and uh, that, that's it. And um, But uh, I have to say, if I was a parent, as I'm today, it, it it would be much much harder and uh, from this perspective today i always imagine uh, when i'm changing diapers let's say or buying uh, organic baby food that's expensive i immediately imagine those times let's say 1993 and how did, did people survive because even if you had money let's say you sell something there is no place to buy it that's the you can be. I mean, there was certain channels and everything, but not all the time. It's it's and not it's for everyone, right? Exactly, exactly. You had to have connections. You have so. What's uh, uh, my father st uh, stopped smoking immediately, and his cigarette ratios in the army was uh, we used them as a uh, money. So we bought firewood. We bought. Uh, food, eggs, and then my mom in 1993, she stopped smoking as well. So many people started smoking, uh, they quit, which is uh, really interesting, and then they use it as money. Yeah, well, I guess necessity drives you to, to towards uh, when the priorities change so quickly. I mean, my dad yes. tells me of those stories as well. He wasn't smoking during the war, but as a member of the army, they were getting the rations or whatever, uh, however many packets they were getting. And, you know, he, he was able to trade cigarettes for, you know, things like meat, uh, which, uh, you know, might sound absurd to most people nowadays, but uh, a cigarette on the front line, you know, has a certain value. Uh, and, of course, you know, meat in the home equally has, an, has a value. So it was a, bar, it was a barter system that was well, well established. Did you go to school for most of the time or, or how did that work? 
So that that uh, that period when it comes to school is kind of uh, foggy. So I remember I remember memories of school. I remember going to school, I, homework and stuff like that. But I don't know which year is which year. So it's kind of uh, all these three years merged. So in the beginning we went to I think three different places, and all these three different places were shelters. So makeshift schools in. Um, someone's basement or in an old uh, market shop and protected with uh, sandbags. But then later on, we did go to my my school from before the war. And I I remember we uh, didn't go only when we had the uh, sirens. Like, uh, uh, and those were sometimes every second day. But then sometimes we wouldn't have any any sirens so school was i don't i don't know how to explain it was uh, something normal you go there there is a bell if there is electricity and uh, i remember we would uh, make a fire in the classroom we had a stove to to keep us warm and uh, we used to get some some kind of uh, help aid uh the pencils and pens and notebooks all of them were from un and they were all the same so again uh, you couldn't be different or <laughs> like yeah. you couldn't have a real madrid or yeah. A Batman <laughs> yeah notebook it was all the same and um, but i do remember school and i was uh, i remember passing some classes failing some classes i remember computer lessons and i was really good at it so uh, I really admire teachers and those people who organize it because they didn't give up. Like, they really didn't give up. And uh, you would think, uh, who cares about school now? But we did go. Even when we had shooting, we would take cover and then continue. People were taking it serious, uh, seriously. And it's, um, it's uh, I mean, something to admire, too. I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's an important point to to acknowledge as well that despite the war, and even if in, in the short time I was there, it, war wasn't 24-7. And I mean, yes, you were under siege, you couldn't leave, there was no, you know, electricity was coming intermittently, but shooting wasn't nonstop. And life tends to go on and finds ways around the adversity to keep going. And, uh, you know, of course, the the... the you know the the Miss Bosnia made made world headlines. Um, you know where a, a Miss Bosnia contest was held. I think in the cellar of uh, uh, might have been the Holiday Inn Hotel or, or somewhere. Yeah. You know, but and, and that's a that, you know that's almost an expression of of almost resistance to the aggression is to force life to continue. Perhaps going to school and trying to normalize whatever's happening is small is a small way of also showing resistance. Uh, that life can keep going. It's uh, similar with the uh, tram uh, streetcar. Uh, when they launched it, I remember I ran away from school. I skipped a few lessons just to have the ride on it. Mm-hmm. And I was maybe, maybe I was maybe 10, 11. Uh, that's from this perspective, mentally, it's idiotic because they did shoot. But we wanted normality. We wanted life before <laughs> the war. We wanted something... Hey, I um, I was riding a tram, 
And I remember I would skip lessons to go to um, swim in the Bandbasha uh, area. And for some reason, they didn't shoot much there. Or I don't remember anyone getting killed there because it's uh, it's protected. It's uh, uh, in between uh, rocks. And sometimes I have few photos from some of the photographers, but not much was recorded back then. But I do remember it was it was like uh, going to Croatia. I mean, it's war and everything, but you are swimming and enjoying life. And <laughs> yeah. most of these times, uh, my parents wouldn't know. They had no idea. I mean, my mom was in hospital. My father was for a month, uh, like one month he was on Mount Ingman. One month he was in Mount Bielaj. So he wouldn't had no idea. So we had that those so older people or older uh, boys and girls they had uh, other stuff to do the bars and, and concerts so life was going on yeah yeah it's uh, it's and, and I think that's a that's a really important aspect of it uh, maybe we can pivot now to that horrible day when your brother was killed by a sniper uh, and and your brother uh, Amel can you describe what happened that day. So uh, when I was when I started writing the story, I think I never shared the story in full to anyone in 25 years uh, until I wrote it for the project. And uh, I don't know why. I mean, I have to be honest. Nobody actually ever asked. And uh, just to just to uh, share something I wanted to share for a long time. Uh, it's interesting how nobody cared and i was uh, i was a child when the war finished so in 1996 i was 13 years old since then nobody ever asked how are you can you tell me more so primary school high school university later on in, uh, when i was working in uh, companies it's really interesting and maybe that that part of me, uh, uh, the part of my life, didn't let me write this story because I thought nobody cares or why would I write it because nobody actually is asking. So through the project, when I started writing it, I had, I think, 11 drafts till the final one. And I was always like trying to write it, but from my perspective, but not only about myself, but about everyone else who suffered or who got killed. So it was May the 3rd, 1995, Wednesday. We were all, uh, home alone. Uh, my father was, I don't remember him that morning, to be honest. So he was on the front line. And in 1995, he had some other stuff to do. So that day he was not, on the front line, he was he had a day off, but he was not at home. I, I remember that. My mom she came from the night shift from hospital, and she didn't go to uh, to sleep. Uh, she went to make us lunch, and she came maybe eight nine. She came home, and we had breakfast. Me and my brother we had breakfast. I remember the breakfast. I remember the chocolate we shared. I have the chocolate cover still. I uh, I saved it, I preserved it, and we went out to play. And I remember he was very good in uh, tennis player. What's uh, really interesting, he's, a, he's an artist. 
mm. and uh, lefty. But besides being artist, he was really, really good in tennis, table tennis, and chess. Really good. And I remember they were uh, competing who can hit the ball the farthest. And that was maybe 11 o'clock. Then we came back in the, in, into the street close to our house, and they started playing tennis. I was playing marbles with my friends, and uh, it was truce, peaceful, May, beautiful, sunny. So when he was killed, when he was shot, it was one shot first in his chest. Uh, I almost lost my hearing. It was that, that loud. And a few days before that, they were saying that we have a sniper nest who will try to uh, kill the, the, the Serb and try to attack them. So when I heard the shot, I thought it was our guys. Because it was so loud, I thought it must be closer to us because it's that loud. But then within seconds, I saw him leaned forward and holding his chest. And my, my friend, she hugged him and she was holding him. So I was 12 and I didn't think uh, of crying. I didn't think of helping him. I went straight to her, uh, inside the house and I told my mom. I grabbed the blanket. I called the ambulance. And I went outside to cover him with the blanket. And when I came back, uh, my mom was already trying to, to help him and trying to. Uh, even today, what I, what I remember is people screaming. I don't remember faces, only one face. But I, I think it was like 30 people crying and screaming, except me and my mom because I was so focused on helping her. Maybe I was not aware, it's not that I'm brave or anything, but uh, uh, it, it took me years to realize that most probably at that moment I grew up. I, I became, it was a shift from a boy, not a teenager, from a boy to a grown-up man. Because people ask me, how did you call ambulance? How... Uh, I was so focused. It was like a like a movie, like a, like I was a professional uh, uh, medic or, or something. So she was trying to help him. Uh, PC, uh, how do you say it? PCR? P yes, CPR. Trying yeah, trying to resuscitate him. Yeah. yeah, yeah. She was trying really hard, and when the ambulance came, we put him inside, and I was I was standing outside and uh, outside the car. And my mom was, say, was saying, Jamil, come, come, don't, don't stay, come, let's, uh, let's take him to the hospital. So for some reason, I thought maybe I should stay here or because I mean, they are going to hospital. Or, and the story I'm going to tell you now, I shared it only with two people and only last year. I never shared it with my mother, never. Uh, it's, I don't know why, but you know when you have a false hope and then uh, you get so happy and then you drop, it doesn't, doesn't happen. So we are driving to the hospital and my brother is 
gargling because the air in his chest is going, coming out. So I tell my mom, hey, mom, he's alive. He's alive. And she just had a, um, that face when, because she's a, med- a nurse, she knows these things. She said, no, son, it's air. He, he, he's gone. And it's like that was the second time he was killed. So first time when he was shot, I thought maybe he's injured, but he's he's on the ground. He's he's killed. So my brain is still processing or hoping that he's killed, but maybe. So in the, inside the car, I saw him alive again. It was it was it was like uh, somebody telling you that you won a million dollar, and then they they no no the numbers are wrong. It was like from hundred to zero. So we come to the hospital. I don't know when and why. I took off his um, watch. And as soon as we arrive, they take me to one, uh, one room because they will try to operate him. So my, my mom's friends, other nurses, they were like, took me uh, to another room, they gave me water. And I was holding his watch. I remember it very well. I think it didn't work because it dropped. Uh, it's a Seiko classic, Seiko 5, that um, uh, older people have automatic. So it dropped and it was full of blood. And I was just holding it like I'm holding him. Like it was something his with with me. And I don't know why I took it off. Like, I mean, I'm a child. It's, uh, it's not that he's going away forever. I, I could take that watch later, but well, maybe I was afraid that someone will take it off. Finally, maybe after 10 minutes or 40 minutes, that period was just like a second to me, but I don't know. Maybe I was sitting there for one hour. They called me to uh, see him. So I entered the room. He's on the concrete bed or whatever it is. It's like... It's not morgue, but it's just one bed. And the room is full, like doctors, nurses. And I see my father there. And I see my mother, and nobody's crying. And my first initial thought was like, hey, he's alive. Like, because nobody, nobody's crying. And my mom, I don't think uh, she had any pills at that moment. But she had that um, face like uh, uh, she was not happy, but she had a face or of a person who got relieved of a huge pain. She said, "Come, Jamil, kiss your brother." So when she said, "Kiss your brother," I thought, "Hey, he's he's alive." So I was approaching the bed to to hug him, and she, and then she said, "Kiss him last time." My whole world crashed that moment. I, I never um, shared this before. And I realized he, that day, he died three times in front of me. <sighs> Sorry. No, oh, man. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Welcome. So all of this, what I do, I think 
is to bring him back to me. I'm speechless, man. I'm I'm in awe of what you've what you're saying and what you're doing. Um and the pain in your voice is ripping a hole in my heart. Um yeah. I'm speechless. And I'm sorry that you. you had to go through that. That's um yeah. I have to say, um it's difficult but it's helping and I hope it helps um, someone else. Yeah. Um, I didn't share it for 25 years and who knows why, but when I do now, I don't care any anymore. So to say, what will someone say and how will someone perceive it? It's just liberating. So it's, why not? Yeah, and as you said, I mean, if it if it can help other people on their path to some resemblance of peace in their mind or in their heart, or if it brings them closer to the ones that have been killed, um, then you're also honouring sure. your brother's death. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry, go on. yes, and I'm and I'm sure it's, there are other people who never share their stories. And uh, and I truly, truly understand them. Uh, I don't judge them. I don't agree with them that they shouldn't share them. I think they should because it helped me, it helped so many others. But I do understand them because people don't want to... Pe some people want to forget it and leave it behind, which is fine. I don't agree with that, but completely understand it because if someone asked me three years ago two years ago i would be the same so it would be like judging myself three years ago so it's and i guess everybody normal did, life. yeah that's right everybody deals with with uh with pain and suffering in their own unique way but i think you're you're spot on getting it off your chest speaking sharing and connecting with others over pain in some small way helps alleviate that pain um, and that's, you know, of course, through your story, but also through many other stories of survivors of horrible um, instances of war speak for that as well. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm interested. You said you only saw one face and there were, other, there were 30 faces. Are you, are you referring to your brother's face? No, I, I saw his face like, uh, and him trying to be saved and I, I remember my mom but I remember one one friend crying and screaming really loud I heard I remember the voices I remember the, 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 the girls and boys and running around and everything but I don't if you don't look you, you there's nothing to be remembered and then you forget of course but one friend I remember really well and he was the one who who said, let's go to our house while your mother is in the hospital. I remember that as well. And when when my mom said, come with us. So he was offering to take me to his house. Uh, it's a childhood friend. But I don't remember. Uh, it was like a matrix. Everyone is like blurred and gliding. Mm. And I was just focused on my mom and on my brother. 
And uh, the, that's why they say sometimes it's uh, really important to speak to people who were there. So I have this idea, but who knows with the project and everything, it's uh, too many, too many things to do. But I would love to find all of them and interview all of them and then overlap it and uh, make a short movie or just uh, like a document of that day because I would like to see and hear how they saw it and where they were when they heard it. It's um, But it's difficult, of course, to do it. It's difficult for them and it's difficult for me. And, of course, I would have to cut it because I would be either directing it or editing it. So it's it's not easy psychologically. But I would love to do it. It's just something that I was thinking to, to, to save and preserve. Because for a long time, I thought we were, me and my friends who were playing marbles, for a long time, I thought we were going away from that spot when we heard. But my friend was uh, corrected me. He said we were coming back because we went to drink water and we were coming back. So it's important, not because someone will say I lie. I mean, there's nothing. I mean, if I was playing marbles or, or football, that doesn't change the fact that he was killed. I mean, uh, but that that's how memory works. It's uh, if you don't correct it or don't check it, it's blurry. I mean, you you might think that you had a red uh, t-shirt, but it was yellow because for some for some reason. And then if you uh, persuade yourself it's red, it's red. That's it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. So uh, same. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. Sorry, go on. So same. So same with that day. Maybe I thought it was 30 people, but maybe it was 10. So it's uh, it's like it's important to... Because uh, with the project and with uh, all this, when I was speaking to my mother, uh, I learned a lot uh, from her. And then I decided I did, a, I did an interview with her. We recorded almost three hours of interview with her. And I asked some questions... I asked some questions that I never asked before, and there were things that I didn't know at all. And uh, one thing was, uh, this is really, really like, I'll make a film. I mean, that's no question. I don't know when, but no, no question, no question about. She was making a, a halva uh, that's usually made either during Ramadan for the. 20, uh, for the special night or during Eid or when there's where there are happy uh, let's say um, happy occasions uh, so it's like a, it comes from a, a Arabic Muslim tradition so and she doesn't know why I mean it wasn't Ramadan it was any nothing special so she was making halwa while she was making a, a, a lunch. So when he was killed, she turned off the stove. We went to the hospital. When we came back, she continued and she finished it off. And her brother came and he said, what are you doing? She said, she said, I'm finishing it off. He won't have graduation. He won't have job uh, celebration. He won't have a wedding. So let me finish this. And that's it. In 2019, she told me this in an interview 
that she never, ever made it in 25 years since then. She says, I can't. And then for the interview, we made one. And it went bad. It went, it was, it overburned, overcooked. And she says, you see, I can't make it. It's a, it's a, so those small details, you don't share, but they leave the mark. They leave the scar. Same as, I mean, it's not the same. I don't eat macaroni. But for example, for me, uh, one thing that I never ever do is I never say to anyone, brother or bro, or uh, because my my tongue, I, I I can't. I have only one brother. It's not uh, that I don't respect people. And when they do to me, I just feel uncomfortable. I know they mean the best. So there are, there are these small details that. Uh, impact us but uh, you cannot explain this to anyone I, I would have to explain all the context so if someone doesn't know that my brother was killed and they go hey brother what's up i cannot go hey don't call me that so i say hey hi how are you but i feel uncomfortable it's not that i don't like it but i cannot um, accept it it feels dishonest uh, it's, maybe it's 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 i don't know it's that's trauma that's a scar yeah. What was it uh, like for your parents afterwards, in the days afterwards, and, and, and you know, the following weeks? Well, for your family, not just your parents, but your whole family. So my mom, she couldn't stay to live there. She couldn't, she couldn't stand it. She, everything was reminding her of my brother and the whole place, the house, the street. So we moved within two weeks. We found, we asked people, is there any place anywhere? So we, we moved away in two weeks' time because she couldn't stand it. And it was really difficult for her, um, especially. My father took it hard, but he didn't show it. He got diabetes later on, and I, I know he took it hard, but he never, he never showed. He died without crying. So he never cried. So... If you don't cry, if you don't show any pain or, or sorrow, uh, it reflects your insides, I would say. And he died of cancer, and most probably that cancer is like came from 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 that. So when we moved away, she was overly protective of me because now I'm the only one. Even though I don't see myself as one, I never say I'm only child. I always say two of us but one of us is killed um, they tried to have a baby and but my mama mom she had miscarriage she was old 39 at that time so i mean already maybe bad dieting and it's still war it's 1986 that she had a miscarriage but uh, just recently she confessed, maybe I never asked, that she was on pills from almost day one. So she, she suffered a lot, and I would say she even today suffers. She's a very, very hard woman, very like uh, brave, uh, dedicated, but she suffers a lot. But I have to say maybe myself and my family give her some kind of uh, 
uh, not hope, but uh, my, my son is named after my brother. So there's his legacy. There's something. She, even today, she called me by his name, sometimes by mistake. I don't mind it. I, I heard it happens a lot. For some people, never. But for my mom, she sometimes calls me Amel. And, and I like it, I have to say. Maybe I remind her of him. And so today, when we talk about my brother, we, we, we don't cry. We don't uh, uh, remember sad stuff. We remember good stuff. So I think that's the process that people should do. And whenever someone dies, let's say COVID, I don't ask, I don't ask people to dwell, to, 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 to feel sad. I ask the good stuff. And, uh, and it's helping because whoever dies, grandfather, child, spouse, there are always good stuff that you can ask. And people love to talk about good stuff. So my brother was 16 years old when he was killed, but he left us so much uh, memories behind him that uh, we don't have to be sad all the time. I mean, uh, of course, he's not there. But And what are some of those positive memories that you look back on? So he he was very calm. So when he was shot, my, bro- uh, my father thought it was me because I'm the wild one, quote-unquote. I was very naughty, and he was very calm, very uh, very responsible. So at the age of 16, he was taking care of the household when my mother was in the hospital and my father. So he was like a father to me, and I, I was really safe with him around. I was like having a father, and he's 16. So I, rem- uh, I remember him as a, as a, as a role model. Usually you, 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 you try to copy your father, I guess. I mean, you have a brother who's older than you, so you know what I'm... Uh, but then my brother was bigger role model than my father. I don't know how to explain it, especially when he was killed because he's not there anymore. So it's not that I wanted to fit, his in, uh, fit him in his shoes, but uh, I, I, I needed to give something back to my parents. So, for example, I'm a video editor. I don't know how to draw. But I went in, into arts. And most probably that was my way of uh, continuing his legacy. So whenever I needed something, he would be there to help me. So those memories, um, of course, my mom has more because uh, she knows everything even before I came. But for example, he's four years older than me and she would say that uh, he would take care of me when he was five, like, uh, like a, almost like a grown-up. He would feed me and, and take care of me, never hit me. And um, So I guess we used to sleep together in one bed. We used to eat together. I, would, I, I couldn't wait to wear his clothes. So even today I have some stuff... Uh, that he was wearing and I have some drawings he did and uh, many actually. So those are the memories and I have the watch. I don't wear it anymore. It's now it's like preserved and safe. So, and uh, those are the, the, the stuff that I uh, cherish, I, I would say. Yeah. And keep you connected to your brother as well. Yeah. 
Yeah. And of course, this is what uh, motivated the Sniper Alley project, uh, as you said, you know, many years afterwards. And I think, as you alluded to, it was part of it came at a time when you were ready for it as perhaps a path or, or, or a part of, of the journey of your healing, maybe as well. But for those who are not aware, why, did, why is it called Sniper Alley? So, uh, Sniper Alley is a term coined in Bosnia. I don't know who did it and who did it first, but it was uh, widely used in the media. Uh, in 1992 onwards, uh, it's a part of the street in Sarajevo, downtown, center, uh, opposite Holday. So all the journalists and uh, photojournalists, most of them, they were placed in uh, Holdain and uh, they were kind of protected by the UN and treaties between, between the Serbs so they wouldn't shoot at them. Uh, that part of the street was called street uh, sniper alley because snipers would be shooting at those crossroads so it goes maybe 700 meters 500 meters so when i was naming the project i wanted to name it uh, something in bosnian but then i realized it doesn't make sense because i want wider population to see it and to so everyone in Bosnia knows what Sniper Ali is and outside Bosnia, everyone, I mean, if you are interested in. So I named it Sniper Ali and then a photo came to my mind because you, when you're naming something, I, will, I, I thought in the beginning, maybe I'm making a mistake. Maybe it's too limiting to just Sniper Ali. I mean, my brother is not killed in Sniper Ali, but he's killed by Sniper. So it doesn't have to be only related to Sniper Alley, but the name itself is so meaningful or, or huge that I wanted to give some kind of uh, importance to it. Uh, the same, same terminology was used in the beginning of Syrian war uh, because Syrian snipers were uh, killing kids as well and, and killing civilians. and They killed one uh, cameraman from Al Jazeera. Same same style. They use the same style of protection with uh, old cars, buses, and uh, shipping containers. So that's how I came with the name. That's just the uh, idea because, I mean, I can explain a little bit about the project. So it's uh, yes, please. So yeah. Snipe, Snipe Rally Photo Project is an interactive database of all the photos or whatever we collect from the period of 1992 to 1996, made in Sarajevo under siege. So I'm not focusing on other cities. I do collect, I keep them, I have them, I know about them, but I don't publish them yet. So you could never know. Who, who, who knows? Maybe we'll broaden it. The project in itself is difficult to explain because right from the start, it didn't um, have only sole, one sole mission but many, and uh, as the time passes by, we are witnessing and we are realizing it has branched out to many different directions. In short, the goal was always to collect as many photos as possible, but not only photos for the sake of photos, just to show them or oh, I have thousand photos, rather photos with their uh, creators, photojournalists, and stories that follow those photos. Something to have a historical value, a document to be preserved and used to educate, warn, waking up some memories, if you want. 
show the level of atrocities we uh, endured, to show the world different types of fights we had. I mean, cultural, military one, economical. It depends what's on those photos, I guess. I mean, it could be something nice, something whatever. Uh, not every photo has the same impact and purpose. So having said all of that, it's interesting that the bigger and broader motivation for this project came after I have launched it. I mean, project has started from my personal story. My mission to find any photo of my killed brother or me or my mother or my father. And it evolved into something huge that is still finding its true form. Having many forms combined in, is not that bad at all, to be honest. Having it like this, uh, growing day by day into unknown fields of human experience is something that I didn't expect. But uh, to be honest, I don't mind. Uh, time will tell and show us uh, what we have done. Uh, the puzzle is still small and we are not ha even halfway there. Every photo has a story to tell. And every photo has a photo photographer behind it. And subject on that photo, whatever it is, something big or small or something bad, happy, uh, bloody, or some event, everything has to be preserved. So that's how the name and the idea and the motivation and the mission came into life together. And in the initial stages of the project, were you successful in finding photos of your brother or your family, yourself and your family? So it's a, it's a difficult one because you, um, let's say I'm sending an email to a photographer and I share the, my story. And some of them would say, oh, I was there only in 1995, December. So there's no way they took photo of my uh, brother, but maybe they took photo of myself, of me. And um, but what they realize immediately, it's not that time after my photo. That's how the project started. And they say, "Oh, sorry for your loss. It's this. I would love to be uh, part of it. Here are the photos I have to find." So I would find photos. Let's say they send me 20, 30 photos and I go through them and I don't see anyone familiar or anything. So I was not successful at all. And I was always telling myself, I'll give five years. I'll find the photo. I'll give myself five years. It has to be there because he was going uh, downtown to high school and most probably someone took it. And we never know. Maybe he skipped classes. He went to, I don't know, wherever because you, you don't know where you like roaming around the city, right? So I was always optimistic about the photos and and I went to school and I went to skip classes, so maybe someone took photos. But I never, I mean, I, I was not focusing so much on myself at that time, so I started it. I'm after the photos whenever they come. And whenever someone sends me photos, so far we have 86 galleries, so 86 photographers on, in the website. And some of them would send me five, some of them 10, 20, 30. I always find few that are really, really cool, so to say, with lots of kids. And then I share them on Facebook and then kids find themselves and they tag themselves. 
And I always, I was always wondering, oh man, when will I find myself to be <laughs> tagged like that? And but um, so that's uh, so it's almost two years. In all, this will be two years. So, and I don't. To be honest, I don't track time and when I started and how long it will take because it has its own life. I mean, it takes a lot of time to be involved in everything because people send emails and I have to update. And I, but I don't, uh, uh, I don't have a deadline. That's the main main point. I don't have a deadline or anyone to like uh, report to. Yeah. You said that it's, or you alluded to the fact that it's now become, you know, it's got a life of its own, basically. What do you mean by that? Who are, who are the other people that are um, involved in the project, and you know, what are they? What are they? It getting? has. So I don't have a huge team. Everything, everyone that's behind it is kind of technical. But when I said it has its own life, for example, if I stop it now, it has. Um, uh, you would be surprised that 86 galleries are there and not everyone saw them. So I sometimes, I have one gallery that was there from the day one, I think. And just recently, one girl recognized uh, her friend in the photo. So people don't check them. They don't check them regularly. So when I say life on its own, if I don't do anything, I did 86 galleries. And they will stay there. It's like more than thousand photos. And at some point, people will start recognizing more and more. And sadly, maybe some of these kids are dead, and there are nobody to recognize them. So I hope not. But uh, but what I do is I update, fix stuff, put details, dates if I have them. But uh, it ha- it's it's big on its own right now. But as I said before, we are not halfway through even because 250 photographers are on my list. They were there, 250 of them. I have collected the list. And at least 30 to 40 of them promised to send me photos. So 40 of them I'm waiting to publish. And who knows what's going to be on those photos because most of these photos are never seen before. Yeah. Why is this uh, project important? Uh, and, and I'm referring to here to making the point that, or at least on the website you described, that it is about remembering and telling the truth. Why is that important? So this uh, the, this one, the project is uh, different when it comes to remembering. It's different because it's not only about remembering for the sake of it, like you remember let's say, music films or concerts or culture. It's important, right? When was the this treaty signed or when was this World Cup? Or yesterday was, for example, I started collecting all these in my head. I don't know why. Yesterday was 20 years since Dani Stanovic won the palm in Cannes for his No Man's Land when everything started. So yesterday was... The, so I remember these, but remembering the war and what we... Uh, experienced is about the justice as well, not only to to we remember events and important dates in history, but remembering the dead and the war is not only to pre- preserve it uh, in that way, it's to save it from forgetting and to honor the dead and survivors of the war. 
at least, I mean, that's at least to show them some kind of respect and justice, if not for today, then for the future generations. I mean, nobody was sentenced to jail and nobody was taken to court, for example, when it comes to Serbs, uh, Serb snipers killing people in Sarajevo on the siege. My brother's killer is a free man somewhere, maybe in Serbia, maybe in Australia or America, who knows? Maybe we never get him, maybe we do, but the details and documents are here to show the world that my brother and other killed children, children and those who survived the siege are not just some statistical figures, but real people with uh, names and faces. Uh, forgetting them would be unjust and would mean killing them a second time, as the quote, famous quote goes. I would dare and say it's one of the most important things regarding the war and genocide in Bosnia and Herzegovina, because if we forget, there won't be no one to uh, remind people in the future, like from 20 years, 30 years, someone fascist or, or some uh, people might come and they could just say, ah, oh, it never happened, or it happened this way or that way. So it is really important. And in a world of alternate facts and, uh, exactly. and parallel stories, right, it's uh, very easy to manipulate information. Uh, and I guess you work in media and television now. Um, I guess you really see the power of storytelling and narrative, right? Yeah, it's, uh, I would say it's everything. It's how people and the world see you. And there's not much you can do about it if it's uh, said the wrong way, uh, if I could say it that way. We, we ha I mean, in Bosnia, we have enough voices in the country that do defend our history and truth. We, we, we have fighters, we have people who, who do research, uh, write books and do films. Uh, this project is a small contribution to that. I mean, I go into the, under that category of fighting the alternative facts. I mean, uh, I'm preserving, at least for myself, and then I try to share as much as possible with the rest of the world. I mean, I or we, we have created something as a platform for ourselves and others who had similar or worse experiences. And uh, with the project, we made a place where we, survivors, can talk and share our stories without anybody whitewashing them or uh, editorially changing them in order to be, uh, you know, politically correct to, to oppressor and oppressed, you know, uh, like neutrality, like just, uh, I mean, uh, for example, EU is constantly pushing us to sit around the table with those who murdered us and who would do it again if they could. Uh, killers and genocide deniers, I mean, people who are directly creating different narratives regarding our war. They either lie about the, the numbers killed or and their crimes, or they say we did it ourselves. I mean, I, I, I sometimes joke about the Serb army, and I say they are the worst army in the world, because whatever projectile or whatever shooting they had, they always miss because whoever died, it's not them. I mean, so what were you shooting at then? But history is on, is on our side. Yes, but we can't stop fighting them because if we stop, I mean, they don't. I mean, it's obvious they don't. Because uh, they're like every fascist in the, in the world, driven by hate. And I mean, they don't have a limit. Their, their, their ultimate goal is to exterminate 
and ethnically cleanse the land from everything different from that. I mean, we have seen it in America. They would have never been stopped if Trump was elected again. I mean, fascists tend to push and push until their goal is achieved. I mean, uh, that's why we have to talk about these things and label them and name them properly. Fascist is a fascist and there is no debate with them. When they come to sit around and, I mean, talk to you, they should be immediately, uh, he's fascist, his views are like this, and let's take everything with some, uh, as I said, narrative is something that needs to be worked on almost constantly. You you have to protect it. Because uh, th- those who survive, and it has to be done by those who survived the genocide, and uh, because we need to listen to them and we need to listen to our victims, because they are the ones that should create it, uh, not fascists, not oppressors, or and not certainly by war criminals. I mean, sadly, narratives are done by majority and not by those who suffer. In our case, we have a good army behind it, so we are fighting. But uh, that's why it's really difficult and uh, really um, important not to give up and stop. I mean, uh, one of the best examples of imposed narrative or narrative that went wrong, so to say, systematically and planned, not by mistake, would be narrative of Palestine and Palestine and how some people, if not majority of the news outlets, report on that. I mean, Palestinian kids simply die as if the rain uh, brings those bombs and drones that kill them. And those who murder those children, they are killed in the counteroffensive. Uh, I mean, you can notice here they don't die, they get killed. And uh, uh, Reuters said that the building had, has collapsed after the missile strike. And then this one is, because I work in media and I noticed and then they put witness. I mean, meaning it's not confirmed and it, they are not sure about it, but everyone saw it, they put witness. So if they are ready to do that to their colleagues, because the building was uh, people from AP and Al Jazeera were in that building that collapsed, quote-unquote. If they are ready to do the, that to their colleagues for whatever reason, imagine what they would do or not do to Palestinian kids. It's written extensively about these books and studies are done, films are made. People are aware and talk about it. But as we said in the beginning, it went wrong in this case for Palestinians and to be noted on not day by day mistake, and it will take a lot of time to be fixed uh, if, or um, uh, justice accomplished. Maybe we don't have that problem in Bosnia that much. We had cases of uh, uh, pre-order uh, camps when British media believed Serbs it was uh, our camp, and we were doing it to other people. It was actors and. Uh, in, on 27th of May, uh, there's uh, Asim Iskina massacre. Uh, there's still article on independence saying that we did it to ourselves. So even after 25 years, the article is still there. I I written to them, I tagged them on Twitter, I tell, told them to delete it. It's still there. So it's um, there are people who are trying to impose those and intrude the truth to, 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 for the last 25 years. People, people are still doing it. They never gave up. And that's why projects like this, no matter how small, 
it seems, are important. And I would say we are more and we are not giving up and uh, we will prevail. Yep, absolutely. And, and, and all the power to you. Congratulations on the project because I think you're, you're spot on. Uh, it is about countering false narratives. And ultimately, it is those narratives that fuel the divisions and fuel conflict and justify conflict and explain conflict. And maybe this is a, a question. I'm not sure how, how, I'm not even sure how to, how to ask it, uh, given your circumstances, but in your mind, how is it possible even for a, let's say a professional soldier? I don't know if they're, I don't, let's assume it was a professional soldier, probably wasn't, probably was a weekend warrior or something. How is it possible to take a side picture and then pull the trigger and kill a child? How does that happen? How does that mental leap happen in a person? It's, uh, I would say it's, uh, they are breeding them on hate. So I wouldn't justify him doing it because he was raised hating us or hating anything different. But I would say they are damaged. So, but one, one thing that everyone makes a mistake is lots of foreigners, lots of uh, foreign press. They always um, say that those are savages, lunatics, idiots. But there's army behind them. There is a commander, there's a general, there's, uh, I mean, Karadzic uh, and Mladic. They are highly educated people and they have the same views. They would do it the same. So we shouldn't fall under uh, in this trap and say, yeah, these people are uneducated and people say are peasants and rural areas. It's hate what is driving them. I mean, we see it all around the world. And uh, I mean, ISIL or Uyghurs or Myanmar or now Israel, it's uh, seemingly those people are normal people, but uh, psychologically and ideologically, they are damaged uh, for life because I have a list of kids who are killed and uh, some of them are Catholics, some of them are Orthodox. Uh, not everyone is a Muslim, and and they didn't know who they were killing exactly. So they were killing anything that was not uh, on their side, quote-unquote, or, or didn't uh, agree to their ideology. And if you listen to Karadzic or Mladic from 1991, 1992, three, four, and now we have uh, documents and leaks, what they were saying with, on the phone with Milosevic and Tujman and how they speak in private, you can tell that they are uh, proper fascists like uh, Hitler's. So we should never label them as idiots, stupid, uh, because it diminishes the, 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 the size of their evilness or um, how to say it. That, uh, because you, you, it's idiot. I mean, idiot is not his fault. He's an idiot because he has a mental or a medical condition. So calling Karadzic idiot, I mean, his actions are idiotic, but he's perfectly healthy in terms of medicine. Of course, he's maniac. 
for his actions, and even today he's defending it. I would worry uh, because they have followers. So they have people who protect him, follow him, they are proud of him, and they are proud of what he achieved. So we have a Serbian president in Bosnia who is complaining that Karadzic will go to British jail because British jails are awful and not safe for Karadzic. So even today in 2021, he's protecting them, protecting him. So he's not seeing him as a human being and it's like, yeah, it's not fair to him. He sees him as his heroes. So it's fair to say that he shares his views meaning his ideology and he would do the same if he could so it's um it's a it's a difficult one because uh, i don't know what's in their heads i mean certainly it's hard to 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 comprehend because on a daily basis i read what they did and i like some people kids are six years old and they shot in the head while riding a bike my my brother was playing tennis, he was 16 years old, he was told, I don't want to justify any kind of uh, killing. But he saw him as the tallest amongst us. And it was truth. It was a one shot. And then after that shot, he tried to scare us a little bit. He shot just empty, empty. Uh, he was shooting at the rooftops just to show some bravery, unquote, unquote. So killing a kid, I mean... It's not uh, something you can approve, understand. It's, uh, I don't know. Are you able to forgive? Or does that word even, what, what does that word mean to you, forgiveness? So. And I know that's a very hard question to ask, but I'm. It is, it is, but uh, I'm glad you asked it because uh, maybe Islamically, we should forgive. I'm a practicing Muslim. And uh, I always thought that forgetting is worse than forgiving because forgiving comes down to me and the perpetrator, like the one who killed. Uh, forgetting, it impacts the future generations. It impacts, like, I'm erasing history because I was the one who experienced it. So if I forget and not share... People wouldn't know. Maybe I would, to be 100% honest with you. But, again, the problem is nobody is asking for it. So for me to forgive, like, just for the sake of forgiveness and to be seen as a really open mind and, and is stupid. I mean, it, it doesn't make any purpose because... There's nobody in 25 years, last 25 years, 26, that came forward and asked for forgiveness out of those who actually did stuff. I'm not talking about activists. I'm not talking about really nice, good human beings, artists, musicians who are ashamed of their trusting. What's happening on the other side for those who actually was war involved, they are proud of it. What's funny, they say we never did it, but we would repeat it, which is, I mean, like, make up your mind. I mean, it's it's really, really, because they don't want to confess, but they want to be proud of it. And it's, so if someone came forward and say, uh, would you forgive me? 
I did this and that. Maybe if he goes to jail and justice is uh, preserved, but then he has a problem because my mother has to forgive him, my friends, my family, and my brother who is not with us. So justice will be served in this life or the next. I mean, it's uh, uh, so that keeps me, as I said, as a Muslim, that keeps me as a survivor, uh, optimistic. For some people, justice is only in this world. For me, it's uh, in the next as well. I wish we could catch him to teach the generations, to show the lesson, to show the world. But uh, it's, the problem is bigger than that because the whole country is behind them. And I, when I say the whole country, I mean the government and uh, all the, the, the politicians and police. And I'm not talking about ordinary people. I'm not bothered with them because I'm sure there are many good, nice, honest people. But sadly, in Serbia, they are in minority. Jamil, you've been uh, exceptionally gracious with your time, and I'm conscious that we've gone well over the, uh, the, the time we've planned. But maybe one last question. You're a father now, and, and you said uh, your son is, uh, son's name is Amel. Uh, is that your only child, or do you have other kids? Or? I have uh, five kids. Oh, wow. Uh, I have, I have uh, four daughters and one son. And I, was, I always wanted to have uh, a lot of kids, even when I was a child. But uh, when my brother was killed, I immediately decided that if I ever get a son, he will be named uh, Amel. And uh, when I got my son and when I got third child, fourth child, I realized that subconsciously I wanted to do something for my brother as well. So believe it or not, when, whenever I go to see the memorial plate with all the children's uh, names uh, who were killed in Sarajevo, I see, let's say, a girl who's 1979 or 1980, ages of my brother, and I always imagine her married to my brother. And I always imagine how much is lost, how much uh, potential is lost. So my way of preserving memory of him or, and that girl is to have two kids for me and my wife, one kid for my brother, one kid for that, his future wife, and then one child for them. Uh, I mean, to some people it might sound uh, not normal, but uh, I did stuff for him in my life, in, in my head, because he's not there, so I would do it for him, and that's one thing that I did for him, I have to say, but I didn't know it in the beginning. Uh, then I realized uh, I'm making a big family to, to uh, make myself uh, brothers and sisters that I missed growing up after he was killed. So I think that's my just my thought. Maybe I'm maybe I want to believe it is. But I, I think um, so in my son I see a lot of things from my brother and I see him as a buddy and a son and a brother. So that's 
that's one thing that um, came out of this. Maybe if I had a brother, maybe I would just have two kids and I don't know. Wow, what a story. What a story. Jamil, I'm, Thank you. Uh, I'm uh, speechless. I, I haven't been moved by a story. And I, it, and truth be told, I even uh, I told, uh, I said to my partner as well that um, I knew this was going to be one of those uh, interviews because your story struck me when I first heard about it as uh, deeply emotional and deeply powerful. So I thank you firstly for being so open, for sharing your story in such an intimate way. And secondly, I congratulate you for finding the courage and the strength to actually turn all that pain into something positive, such as your project. Because I think, as you rightly pointed out, it's not just about you and your brother. It is about the stories of the thousands of children who've suffered. And perhaps in this case, only in Sarajevo, but it's broader than that. It's broader than that. It's about war and suffering, and particularly children in war, and then, of course, the scars that they carry uh, for the rest of their lives. So absolutely in awe of what you're doing, mate, and uh, I wish you the best of luck, and truly thank you for giving me so much of your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for uh, giving me a chance to speak, and uh, they say when you touch uh, a small child on their head, when you tap the child on their head, you tap the mother on their hearts. So whenever I invites, whenever someone invites me to talk about the project and whenever someone gives me uh, space and time, I see it as giving uh, a voice to my brother because he's not with us and I'm his, his voice. So whenever sh someone shows me love, they actually showed love to my brother, and uh, I'm really, really uh, respectful of that. And uh, his le legacy lives on. I mean, thousands of people heard his name, and I'm really, really uh, happy about it because it's more about him, not me. And uh, your invitation is that, love for my brother and uh, understanding of everything that happened to us. So I'm Really thankful to you. It really is, and uh, and thank you for saying that. Uh, and I look forward to meeting you face to face rather than merely uh, digitally when the world yes gets back to normal again, whatever that means. Yes, exactly. Stay safe, and uh, we'll be in touch. You too. Thanks a lot. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Voices of War. You can access all episodes on www.thevoicesofwar.com or by subscribing wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And while you're there, please give us a review as we'd love to hear what you think. If you'd like to recommend a guest for the show, you can reach me on info at thevoicesofwar.com.